Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you are all having a great summer. Um, We've got a new episode for you here, so hope you enjoy this one. Episodes will be a little bit sporadic over the summer, but we'll keep bringing you great content as and when we record episodes and then get back to slightly more regular programming in September, although we've got um, uh, several good ones lined up for you over the summer. Uh, If you'd like to support the podcast and enable us to continue what we're doing here, we'd welcome any support you could give, either by giving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, or by donating. You can go to onscript.study forward slash donate. That will help sustain this operation and keep it ad-free. All right. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to OnScript, a podcast that features conversation in biblical studies and theology. OnScript is co-hosted by Matt Lynch, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri, and yours truly. This is Matthew Bates, your co-host for this episode. I've got a couple guests with me here today. My first guest is Enoch Okada, who is the author of a fantastic new biblical studies title, Christ the Gift and the Giver published by Cascade in 2022. Enoch's book will be the primary spur for our conversation today. I'll introduce my second guest, the surprise top secret guest in a few minutes. Uh, But first, let's get the ball rolling. Welcome to OnScript, Enoch. Thank you so much, Matt. Now, Enoch, this is uh, the first time you've been on OnScript, and we don't know you. Uh, We don't know you at all. It's a little awkward. Uh, so help us get to know you, Enoch. Um, can you give us the five-minute version of your life's journey here, just so we can be friends? Okay, thanks. Yes, so my name is Enoch Okode. I am teaching at um, Scott Christian University in Kenya. It's, uh, Scott Christian University is a private chartered university, and uh, I've been teaching here for a few years now. Um, I'm married. My my wife is called Viji, and the Lord has blessed us with two kids. Um, I'm also serving at Scott here as Dean of the School of Theology, which is like uh, we have a seminary, we have graduate uh, programs, we have also undergrad programs. I serve as Dean. Um, what else do you want to know about me? You gave me five minutes for that. Oh, go, go, yeah, go back farther in time for us, Enoch. Um, tell us about your your background growing up a little bit and how you ended up as a Pauline scholar. That's not where everybody ends up in life. So, yeah, give us the backstory. Yeah, I was I was raised up in Kenya, and um, my dad, who is deceased, is was was a pastor, and growing up, he was uh, was quite influential in my life. I always looked forward to being like him. He was like my role model. And he was faithful, hardworking. And so the Lord used his life to just show me how beautiful and how fulfilling it is to serve God. 
And so when I was in high school, I was already convinced that the Lord was calling me to full-time ministry. And so after high school, I joined Scott uh, for my undergrad, and I studied theology. And um, while I was um, studying at Scott, I took the Romans class, which you are simply studying the English text of Romans. And uh, in that class, I, I wrote a paper. It was handwritten. This was about 20 years ago. <laughs> handwritten, about seven pages long. And I wrote on Romans 5, 1 to 5. And I was studying that text. It's, it was just such a beautiful text. And I was like, wow, what is Paul doing here? So that just piqued my interest. I graduated from uh, undergrad in um, 2004 and went to, to teach at a small Bible school here in Kenya for about three years. And as I was teaching there, one of the classes that I enjoyed teaching was Romans. And I was also teaching homiletics. And uh, in my homiletics class, I needed to give uh, students a sample sermon. So I prepared a sermon on Romans 5, 1 to 5. And I nev I'd never preached that text. I'd studied it, but never preached it. So I gave my students this sample sermon, and um, they were preaching it everywhere. And I, I was like, wow, this, this is a text that I want to study. And so you know, fast forward, I went to, to graduate school. And uh, in graduate school, I didn't study Romans at all, but I was still interested in Romans 5 particularly. And after completing my grad studies, I, I came back to Scott. That was now in 2009. And I, I taught here for about five years. And one of the classes that I taught was Romans. And so by then, I was really fully convinced that I wanted to study Romans for my PhD. And uh, I was still just thinking of Romans 5, 1 to 5. And I didn't, I didn't know anything about benefaction then. <laughs> I didn't know anything about gift giving. And those were just not categories for me then. So as, when I was applying to various... Uh, graduate programs, I had already identified what I wanted to study. I wanted to study Romans. And one of the reasons why I was interested in that was just because of the, the, the experience I had 20 years, about 20 years ago when I was in um, undergrad studies, taking Romans. And um, I was also interested in Paul's theology of suffering. I think it was partly just because of what was happening, which is still happening in my context with um, the so-called prosperity gospel and how people are struggling with the theology of suffering. And Romans 5 and Romans 8 is, are one of the places, uh, two of the chapters in, in Paul's uh, writings where he addresses the theology problem of suffering. So, so I was interested in hearing what Paul is saying and how that might be relevant to my context. And so I, I found myself, the Lord led me to, to TEDs where I studied Romans, not one, 5, 1 to 5, but 5, 1 to 11. Yeah, so. Thank you. 
Uh, that's um, that's really a beautiful tribute on the one hand to your father um, and his faithfulness as a pastor that really led you into your career and um, your your calling into ministry, but also just a fantastic articulation of your ongoing love affair with Romans. Right, this has been a um, this has been a lifelong. I love that. I love the story about the handwritten, you know, um, paper that you wrote, you wrote, um, and uh, how then, yeah, years later you end up doing PhD dissertation on that very passage. Um, yeah, that's that's really a, a beautiful tribute. And um, you spoke a little bit about um, your context in Kenya and about the encroachment of prosperity gospel uh, into that landscape. And I was wondering if you if there's anything more that you want to say about your your you know kind of the the setting and the contextual work you do in Africa, in Kenya more specifically. Um, yeah, do you want to speak to that uh, just a bit more? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so what I do right now is um, leading the School of Theology, and um, we are uh, training pastors and church leaders. And um, Scott has been uh, in existence for more than 50 years, and uh, it was initially it was just founded to train pastors, but now we are doing more than that. We have three main schools, so... Is there a specific um, Enoch, a specific denominational context that you're you're connected with, or any? Yeah, how do you how do you network with churches? I'm just curious. Yes, God is affiliated to Africa Inland Church. Um, I'm not sure that you're familiar with uh, Africa Inland Missions. Yeah, that was Africa Inland Church was founded by Africa Inland Missions. So. Africa Inland Church itself has more than 7 million members in Kenya alone. And there are many denominations, many many churches, local churches, I think probably more than 20,000 spread throughout the country. So many of our pastors aren't trained. And so as a school, we are doing our best to train pastors and church leaders so in, in our context, one of the, of the problems that we are facing right now is not just um, we don't have enough trained pastors, so that is one of the problems, but we are also facing the challenges that emanate from the prosperity gospel. And one of them is just suffering and the understanding of what the gospel is. And so... You will find that in so many in so many pastors, so many settings, people don't have uh, uh, the right sound theology of of suffering, and so we are helping the church to address that problem at the moment. In fact, just this past semester, one of the classes I was teaching was the theology of uh, of prosperity and suffering, and. Uh, in, and I had just three main goals in that class, helping my students understand the gospel. And then number two, helping them to understand the so-called prosperity gospel and why it is not the gospel. And then uh, the third goal was focusing on this, the biblical teaching on suffering. What does the Bible say about suffering and how do we participate in the sufferings of Christ? Yeah, so that is a huge need in our context at the moment, and I'm just so glad that the Lord led me to studying Romans five and uh, helping me understand some of the of uh, Paul's teaching on on suffering. Yeah, that's a rich text, obviously, for um, equipping 
you in order to help lead the way in, in these discussions, as Paul has much to say about both the nature of the gospel and the theology of suffering, I think, in that passage. So I just want to stop and just praise your book just for a moment, Enoch, as I really um, thought it was remarkably well written. Um, the full title of Enoch's book, Christ, the Gift and the Giver, Paul's portrait of Jesus as the supreme royal benefactor in Romans 5, 1 through 11. And some of the things I think that are just remarkable about your book are its clarity of expression, the soundness and exegetical judgments, breadth of scholarship that you engage. And I say all this especially because you can't say that about most, you know, revised PhD dissertations. This book did have its origin as a PhD dissertation. Um, and you wrote dissertation at TEDS, right, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, and when I discovered that uh, your book was a TED's uh, dissertation supervised by my friend and longtime friend of the podcast, Joshua Jepp, I thought to myself, what could be more enjoyable for Enoch than to have the chance to redefend his dissertation? Uh, I mean, you defended it a first time, Enoch, right? Um, but once a person passes their dissertation defense, I think it's normal to dream of getting the chance to get grilled about the details of your dissertation just all over again. And am I right? I mean, that, that's true, right? Don't, don't, don't we all just want to get grilled endlessly by our PhD supervisors? Um, so in light of that, I decided to bring on Joshua Jip as our special guest. Uh, welcome back to OnScript, Josh. Yeah. Hey, Matt. Um, I hope I've just made everyone's day. I know they've just been waiting with bated breath to see who this special guest was going to be. And uh, but I hope I hope you all can go to bed, you know, go to sleep tonight. Just feeling like it was a great day now that you've you've seen it's me. It's Josh Jip. Yeah, <laughs> you have a lot of fans out there, Josh Jip. Let's not let's not deny it. Um, and doubtless, At least um, two, some right? of our maybe yeah. maybe Enoch and Matt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but well, I, I do want to say I do want to say there is there is some level of um, this is kind of a I feel like I've achieved a goal. Um, you know, this being sort of like if we can count this as like my third time on script, and why that matters is because a while back ago I I was hearing Brent Strawn just go on and on bragging and bragging about how many times he's mm, he's, like he's been on the show. And so as much as I love Brent, it was kind of getting on my nerves just how cocky he was being, you know, about all of his appearances. So I don't know if this ties me with Brent, um, but but it, but it is a pretty I, I do feel like this is a pretty big achievement on my end. So so thanks for having me. Matt. <laughs> well, what have you been up to recently, Josh? Well, besides sleeping until nine in the morning and, uh, you know, just. Watch, watching a lot of daytime TV uh, now, now that it's summer. Um, no, in all seriousness, uh, uh, yeah, in terms of academics, you know, stuff, I ha just recently turned in a book to Baker. Um, I don't know what the title is going to be, but it is sort of an existentially engaged Pauline theology that's also kind of looking at what Paul might have to say about contemporary topics related to things like emotions and friendship and what does it mean to pursue Christ as the supreme good. So that's that's largely off my plate. And now I am spending most of my time working on a textbook on the Gospels, on the four Gospels. So that's been a lot of fun. Man, Josh, why don't you do some work sometimes? I mean, yeah. you're so lazy. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's really troubling. Yeah, well, um, yeah, yeah, look who's talking, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, well, Josh, are you ready to, you know, re-examine Enoch today to, to see if his dissertation, you know, his revised uh, dissertation, this is not his dissertation, this is a revised dissertation, to see whether that deserves a passing grade? Yeah, absolutely. It, it is a great, it was a great dissertation. It's a great book now. But there were a lot of questions during the hearing that I didn't get a chance to really delve into as much as I'd hoped. So I'm right. well, passing the baton been, to you. I've um, been let's, looking let's, forward to this for how many years? Yeah. When did you defend, Enoch? Has it been about four years ago now? Uh, it's, it's about three years. But three? So okay. your, yeah. your roles have changed. You are the troublemaker now. Um, let, me, let me start with this first question, Enoch. You know, the verbal form of Kaukasthai, um, you talk quite a bit about meaning to boast. And do you remember exactly how many occurrences of the form of Kaukasthai we have in Paul's letters? And and uh, and I'll include all of its cognates. Um, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. What would be what would be your guess? Oh, my guess. Wow. Yeah. Okay, maybe four or five times. Oh, it's it's a lot. It's a lot more. In fact, ninety percent of the New Testament occurrences occur in Paul's letters. So that might be that might be something we need to revisit. Enoch, Enoch, we can't believe you've forgotten that detail. Yeah. Um, and especially because, Enoch, on page 129 of your book, you actually give the correct answer, which is 64 times. Um, how has that slipped your mind, Enoch? Okay, let me see. Um, <laughs> give me the page again. Remind me of what I wrote. <laughs> remind, me, remind me of the argument again. <laughs> Uh, we're just teasing you, yeah, Enoch, know. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it, it's uh, we can only do this because your book truly is fantastic. It's it's uh, it's the only way in which we could ever joke about reexamining anybody, right? Um, is uh, uh, is is because of that. In fact, Josh Josh loved your book so much that he wrote a foreword for your book in which he publicly praised it. Uh, I'm uh, I was privileged to be on your back cover uh, to uh, blurbing your book. Uh, we both obviously think um, this is a, a great book. Um, we'll, we'll ask you some real questions questions now, though. Um, so uh, I really learned a lot from your book. And you focus on Romans 5, 1 through 11. And uh, you use this to explore exegetically, theologically, that text more, especially using the lens of royal benefaction. Tell us a little bit more about why, if you want to illuminate all of Romans and maybe all of Paul's letters, why is Romans 5, 1 through 11 a good text for um, looking both backward into Romans and forward into some themes that Paul anticipates. Why Romans 5, 1 through 11? Yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, one of the reasons why I think Romans 1 uh, through 11 is key is just what Paul is doing there. If if we divide Romans into different movements or sections, then uh, Romans 5 begins a new movement in Paul's argument. And uh, part of what he does in Romans 5, 1 to 11 is to remind us of the preceding argument. And um, it reminds us of what is already said about Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as Lordship. And uh, it's already talked about Christ's death and resurrection. And um, one of the biggest arguments in the preceding chapters is is uh, the problem, the predicament that humanity is facing of uh, sin and death. And so in Romans 5, 1 to 11, Paul is reminding us of that using the language of, uh, of our sinfulness and, uh, and we are ungodly, we are God's enemies. And so he's reminding us of the preceding argument. And then he also 
gives us uh, it reviews what is yet to come what is going to to develop in romans 5 12 and uh, and the preceding verses so just based on on uh, how that text functions as a recapitulation as well as uh, a preview of what is to come it It, it makes it quite key if if you want to understand what Paul is doing in uh, in the whole letter, and um, it is also important to note how Paul has already defined the gospel for us and how he goes back to that theme of the gospel in um, not just Romans five but Romans five to eight, and uh, he defines the gospel for us in Romans one three. To four, and the gospel is centered on Jesus as uh, the Davidic Son, Jesus the Messiah, who has already is already raised and is enthroned as King. And when you come to Romans five, the whole argument of Romans five to eight is is framed by this by, by Paul's reference to the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, at the beginning of chapter 5 and also at the end of chapter 8. So, and we, we see that same phrase or that, 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 that reference occurring so many times between Romans 5 to, between Romans 5 and 8. So, so we see that Paul is, is providing a Christological argument And uh, Romans 5 plays a key role in Paul's articulation of what the gospel is and how then Christ's followers are, are invited to share in the story of Jesus Christ. Enoch, one of the um, interesting parts of your argument has to do with your claim that royal benefaction illuminates Romans 5 through 8 as one of the most important kind of backgrounds or lenses for making sense of all of the different moves of Romans 5 through 8. Tell your listeners, what first of all, what is royal benefaction? Um, what are we talking about when you use that kind of language of royal benefaction? And then how does that, as a lens, how does that help you illumine what's going on in Romans 5 through 8? Okay, thank you. So so benefaction is, is simply a selective a system of gift exchange that seeks to enhance social cohesion by the ethic of reciprocity so benefaction is is just simply a system of gift giving and uh, in the ancient world the ideal ruler is is presented is portrayed as someone who is generous who is kind and uh, who gives gifts So for that system to function, there must be a return gift. There must be the ethic of reciprocity. In other words, you receive carries, you receive a gift, and you are expected to return a gift. So when you come to Romans 5, 1 to 11, we see how Paul is, is, is at home in this system of benefaction. I just reading the text and, and paying attention to some of the language, the metaphors of benefaction that we see in this text. I mean, things like peace was one of the gifts that the ideal rulers would give to their subjects is peace, establishing peace, ensuring that uh, the citizens are enjoying peace. And we see that language in Romans 5, 1 to 11, 
in Romans 5, 1, Paul says that uh, through Jesus the Messiah, we have peace with God. And then in, in Romans 5, 2, we see the language of um, access. We, Through Jesus the Messiah, we have obtained access by grace into this grace. We have obtained access uh, by grace into this grace in which we stand. And um, one of the key terms of benefaction that Paul is using, not just in Romans 5, but also Romans 5 to 8 and elsewhere in Paul is charis, what we usually translate as grace or gift or favor. And in Romans 5, Paul uses it in verse 2. He will use it many times in, uh, in the rest of Romans 5 from, from verse 12 and in uh, 6, 7, 8. Yeah, but that's another language of benefaction that we see Paul using here. You know, I like how, um, you know, in the book you show that, like, key terms like prosagoge, like that term for access, right, that um, that really fits into the patron-client model as one of the things that a client needs is they need to have a way to access a powerful patron, and that's not a given, right? You you don't always have access to the important people. Um, and so you show that sometimes that language of, like, access um, can get reduced down in Paul into... Um, a different kind of access is maybe we need access to go into, you know, see him as the high priest or things like that. But that's not rooted in a, a kind of a patron client model. And I think you show how how powerful that lens is, right, for um, thinking about this this terminology. So I just wanted to add that. Sorry to interrupt you. You were you were um, you were speaking about grace. Was there was there more that you wanted to continue to say there? Yeah, but that language of access is is so is so beautiful because. I what it says is Paul is Paul argues that through Jesus the Messiah, Jesus who is now acting as our our mediator, is is enabled us to to approach God, is given us the the privilege of coming into the royal chambers, and this access is not just for for a short period of time, but if you are participating in the story of the Messiah, then you have an unhindered 24-7 existence in the royal chambers. So, I mean, it's just so beautiful. But yes, so grace is, is another metaphor or language of benefaction that Paul is using in Romans 5. Yeah, grace is... Grace is really a key term, I think, um, in this project and for your your whole book, as obviously the title of your book is um, connects to grace in two directions, right? As it, it focuses on Christ as both the gift and the giver. Um, one of the things I think that's interesting about your project is the way in which you, on the one hand, show that Paul buys into Greco-Roman norms and 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 obviously Second Temple Jewish norms too about benefaction and ideal benefaction, as on the one hand, he affirms norms, but there was also surprising dimensions in which Paul says, Jesus is a different kind of benefactor and a different kind of gift. Maybe you could speak about, as you continue to talk about grace and gift giving, could you lead us into some of the ways in which Jesus affirms traditional dimensions of gift giving, uh, but also surprising, especially, I think, because I think that was some of the most interesting work you did, was to show surprising dimensions of how Jesus disrupts norms about Greco-Roman gift giving. 
Yeah, so some of the norms that he affirms is, I mean, is is a gift giver. So <laughs> that's quite obvious. But he gives gifts. But also, what we, we see in in the Greco-Roman system of of benefaction, that the ideal ruler might offer sacrifices, and we see Christ doing that. He offers he offers a sacrifice. And um, another another norm that he affirms, that Paul affirms, as, as he presents Jesus Christ as a, a gift giver, uh, is that he establishes peace and reconciliation. There are a few others that I, I could add to that, but there are many surprising elements that uh, we see in Christ's benefaction. And first of it is just the gift that he gives, that, that carries, that he offers his own life as a gift. Now, that is that is not completely unexpected. There are, there are times when, uh, when great rulers would be willing to, to sacrifice their lives for the sake of, uh, of, of their citizens, of their subjects. But that was not the dominant script. The dominant script was for the, the subjects, the beneficiaries, to be willing to die for the sake of their ruler. So Christ's willingness to offer his own life as a gift so that is both the gift and the giver is surprising. But another key surprising element is just how and to whom this gift is given. In in the Greco-Roman uh, benefaction system, it, it was gift giving was common, but you had to 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 be discriminate. You had to be selective. And you only give gifts to those who deserve it. So you give gifts to the worthy. It was it was unheard of for any ideal ruler or benefactor to give gifts to the ungodly or sinners or your enemies and those who deserve death. But, but Paul's argument is that Christ has offered this gift indiscriminately to those who have been described as godless, ungodly, and sinners, and enemies, those who are weak. And he offers this gift, this gift not because he's reciprocating the good deeds of a royal benefactor. I think one of the key verses that, that we see in Paul's argument is, is actually verse 7, which would uh, be could be could be read as um, Paul saying that well Christ isn't offering his life because he is reciprocating the gift that he has received, but Christ is offering his life not for a, a righteous person, not for the good, but for the ungodly. So, so he is is not following the the script of reciprocity that his his sacrifice is a heroic act of reciprocity no so so that is that's quite a key surprising element in um, in Paul's argument but we, we this is also a key another one about um, what Paul says on, on about suffering that Christ's benefaction 
transforms how we view suffering. So the ideal benefactor desires to liberate and uh, and to help their subjects to overcome suffering, liberate them, liberate them from suffering. And and Christ does that. He liberates us from from sin, from slavery to sin and death. But for now, as we await our glorification, his benefaction transforms how we view suffering. And Paul says that we boast in suffering. And that's surprising because you'd, you'd not expect a benefactor to tell you that I've brought you liberation. And as soon as he says that, that now you can boast in the hope of the glory of God, you'll be clothed with immortality. And then in the same breath, he affirms that, oh, now you can also boast, you should also boast in sufferings. And yeah, so that is surprising, but it it is rooted in how we participate in the story of Jesus Christ, of his death and resurrection. And that even as we suffer with and for Christ, we are sure that he's sovereign over the realms of life and suffering and death, and that we will not be put to shame just as he wasn't. So we will be vindicated. Yeah, so, but those are some of the elements of, um, some of the surprising elements of, of benefaction that we see in Paul's argument. Thanks, Enoch. And I, I think um, you do a really effective job in the book of speaking about how, um, yeah, that as part of gift giving, we need to reciprocate in order to accept the gift, right, in order for it to be socially received and to show the degree to which, obviously, gratitude and loyalty were expected of clients whenever a benefactor gave, but that how um, suffering is a form of loyalty. Um, I thought that was an interesting connection. Um, that you made and a way showing a w- ways in which this reverses Greco-Roman norms. Um, I'm going to turn and ask Josh Chip a question here um, as I, I want to kind of tap into his wisdom um, while we have him um, on the line here also. So Josh, one of the things that's I think certainly true about our audience for OnScript is we have a number of people who are um, junior scholars, senior scholars, the whole spectrum, pastors who listen in, um, but especially for those who are trying to find their footing in um, the landscape of Pauline studies. I think it's safe to say that ideal kingship is a topic that is a, a, a somewhat hot topic right now. And we've seen more people doing work in that direction. Julian Smith's work, um, your work, you've written, um, you know, Christ, Christ is King. You've also got your Messianic Theology of the New Testament. Um, where do you see some of the, what are some of the hot spots in ongoing research there or anything come to mind for people who are looking to uh, maybe to find a location to do some research work of their own? Mm, yeah. I mean, some of the recent books, you mentioned Julian Smith. It was fun to see his, and I know you had him on as a guest within the last year or whatever, but to see the way in which he takes Christ's messianic kingship as sort of a lens for what it would mean to live the good life, as he calls it. can't remember his four C's exactly, something like community and citizenship and, you know, right, but sort of like uses different different angles, right, to talk about but the overarching framework is Christ's kingship. I think J. Thomas Hewitt's book, something on Messiah and scripture was put sort of, you know, more work in terms of analyzing, like in what way, I mean, obviously flowing from some of Matt Novenson's work, but in what way as Paul's exegesis sort of participating in broader Jewish messianic readings of, or readings of the, the oracles, uh, messianic oracles, 
I think I one of the things Enoch mentions at the end of I was just skimming through part of it again today, but he mentions in terms of future prospects something that's kind of interesting to me. And I've been seeing a little bit more buzz about this, but would be basically what you know, what about priestly language or priestly categories? I guess I'm you know, different ways to say this. When Paul refers to Jesus as Christos, is that just a royal Messiah? I've by and large, by and large, tended to think, yeah, that's the predominant way of thinking of what Christos means. But obviously, kings and emperors, rulers in antiquity also had priestly or kind of cultic functions as well. So again, I don't see this as necessarily being one of the dominant images. Of course, there are places, you know, Paul speaks of himself in Romans 15 as having priestly ministry. And in the Romans 8, 834 passage where he's yeah, absolutely you have Romans being at the right hand mediating. interceding on our behalf. So you have places, I know Dave Moffat has wanted to push this a little bit more. Uh, I think David, you, know, you had David Downs. Do you have David Downs and Benjamin mm-hmm. on as well, right? The, also yeah. in Romans three twenty five, in terms of Christ and the mercy seat or however you want to trans- translate it. So those are some of, I guess, some of the areas that I'm more, you know, that I'm intrigued to see how, we'll, how it will play out down the road. Yeah, I don't know. Do you have thoughts, Matt? Yeah, no, um, nothing beyond what what you've suggested, at least uh, at the moment. I was just curious as I, yeah, it seems like there's more and more work being done on the topic of ideal kingship. So um, I'm interested to kind of keep my ear to the ground and uh, and see how this conversation develops. And probably you guys both may continue to write on this topic a bit. We'll see. Anyway, well, let's transition to a speed round. We like to do those on OnScript uh, just because uh, it, they're fun, changes the pace a little bit. So uh, Josh, you've done one before, but for Enoch, for your benefit. Um, here we're asking questions. Sometimes they're funnier questions or just kind of get to know you questions. And the idea is a short answer, not a long answer. I'm like, as in, you know, a 15 second answer instead of a three minute answer uh, for speed round questions. Uh, so I actually prepared some for both of you, though, not just for Enoch, because I thought, you know, why not? So um, I'll go ahead and, and ask some speed round questions for each of you. But we'll start with Enoch. This one's for Enoch. So uh, Enoch, what was the most horrible thing about having Joshua Jip? as your dissertation supervisor. Wow, okay. Don't hold back, Enoch. Let's see <laughs> Don't it. hold back. This is your chance, Enoch. Come on, you've been waiting you for this. Answer, I will. That's an interesting question. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to find something. <laughs> <laughs> so, jo- so jo- Josh, if you, was, if you have to answer for him, what are you going to say? I mean, well, well I, would, I would say I remember, um, you know, back in my office, Enoch, Enoch coming in, working on his proposal, and I'd be like, well, let's, let's take a little bit longer. Let's do a little bit. Let's, let's, let's change this or fix this a little bit. And I, I do remember Enoch at one point, you're so kind, you are so pleasant, so respectful, but I could just see it in your eyes. You're like, okay. <laughs> you remember, right? I remember, but it helped me. I mean, yes, yes. Look, thinking about that and how you, you challenged me to work upfront. So I mean, retrospectively, I really appreciated that. So I wouldn't look at that as, as the most horrible thing. Um, because, I mean, once I was done with my proposal, the rest of the race was quite fast. So Yeah, no, you, you, you wrote, you, you, yeah, yeah that, was, uh, that was obviously the goal. You wrote like a really good proposal. And then I, I, th- to some extent, I, pr- those of us that supervise dissertations probably are doing a lot of it out of what we learned from how we were or how. Or, we, or things we want to do differently, right? 
And I think I, I felt as though when you know Luke Timothy Johnson supervised my dissertation proposal, the um, getting the proposal just really solid made the writing process so much easier and so much simpler. So um, we've gone on more than 15 seconds in this speed uh, round. Yes, yeah. Oh, I had the opposite experience as David Ani probably gave me too much rope and I almost hung myself as uh, my, my proposal was probably too loose and uh, I almost lost my way in the middle. Uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, we do learn from our experiences. And and so, um, yeah, anyway, um, my speed round question for Josh then was, Josh, why, why, are you, why were you so mean to Enoch? Um, um, well, that's a good question. But then, it's but just, Enoch it just didn't, comes out of my personality. It's just I know, who I Enoch, am. Enoch didn't give us enough dirt that I, yeah. I was really hoping that I could just kind of turn that back on you. I, 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 right. I give I give those gifts indiscriminately to Enoch <laughs> and everyone else. Uh, all right, Enoch, here's another one for you then. Uh, what do you miss most about living in the U.S. now that you're back in Kenya? Oh, I miss the library. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's a true scholar's answer. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, all right, for Josh then. Josh, uh, t- changing the pace entirely if you could get any motor vehicle for free to drive regularly and you didn't have to pay for gas uh what are you going to choose any motor vehicle at all um i would probably get uh i would probably get one of those jeeps that you know is you can off-road in and um yeah that's 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 what it'd be i would just be out out in the woods, you know, bouncing through the rivers. That's could have, you could have. I mean, I said any motor vehicle. I mean, you could have chosen a houseboat. Um, you could have chosen um, an RV. Yeah, yeah. Like think about what that would be like to drive a hundred foot long RV. All right. Every day into Ted's. I think I'm going to change it. Change change it. My answer to a yacht. I probably yacht. have a yacht. So uh, for Enoch, then Enoch, are are there any sports you like to follow? Well, I, I like watching soccer what you 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 guys don't know how to call it well but yeah uh, football, yes, yes. So. football. <laughs> yes. yeah yeah well, thank you for for helping uh, yeah i uh, keep keep the the vocabulary in the right direction there well interesting um, yes. yeah okay quite sorry all right uh and so for josh uh josh josh why are the san francisco giants your face your favorite baseball team well i would just have to say they're one of the most they're, they're just one of the best run organizations in all of baseball San Francisco, right there on the bay, that stadium just doesn't get any more beautiful. Oh, you're they nice. I thought you were going to say some horrible things about it because I know you're you're, a, you're actually wearing – Josh is actually wearing right now a, a Minnesota Twins T-shirt. Uh, you can't see this because, you know, you're not we're – not, we're not publishing this on video, which is a blessing to you all. Um, but uh, I thought you were going to say something nasty. And no, say something I, I've got pro – if you had picked the Dodgers, I'd probably say something nasty. Oh, yeah. Well, that's – Michael Barber. Yeah. Um, yeah, but but yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, I have most of, mostly appreciation for the. Giants. Oh, well, that's nice. That's nice. And you're coaching baseball right now. Best I don't thing about coaching I, my kids. I don't coach anymore. Oh, you don't like, coach. You did you know, coach though. My boys oh. are beyond what I can offer them in terms of baseball coaching. Yeah, I, 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 I train with them. I work with them, but in terms of coaching. I think those days are sadly over. Mm. Well, um, Enoch, we always ask this question of our guests for the speed round question. Um, so um, here's your question. So apart from Josh Gipps, the Messianic Theology, the New Testament, uh, which is an obvious answer, uh, what is the most important theology or biblical studies title for you uh, that's been written in the last 50 years? 
Now you can't answer Josh Jip's book. It's too obvious, too obvious, nor can you do crisis King, but, um, you have to, um, yeah, you have to choose, um, what you think is the best or the most important for you, a book in the last 50 years, do you think? Yeah. The last 50 years, I think one of the most influential books for me was, uh, Buckley's Paul and the gift. Well, Paul, Paul and the gift. Yeah. Gosh, so many people have said that on the show. I think, um, it's, it's gotta be our number one answer. And, uh, and let's just use that as an immediate chance, chance to kind of transition back to our, our longer interview format. Uh, so you can answer this question more fully then. Um, as you know, I think that, um, you obviously build on Barclay's work and there's a lot of continuity between what you're doing and what he's doing. Is, are there, were there any ways in which you, um, you want to push beyond, you think clearly what, what he does, or maybe even offer correction where you think like he, his project is a little bit incomplete and here's where we can, we can add some completion to what he's done. Uh, any ways you, 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 you feel like we can push beyond Barclay or that you feel like you already are in your project? Well, his, his argument is outstanding. I mean, he's, he's, he's made his point so, so clearly that, uh, that carries is, 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 is incongruous and, um, and that it comes with inalienable ties of obligation. I, I really appreciate that. But yes, so just one of the the areas that I, I thought that he needed to say more on was just Romans five seven, where um, yeah, I think he he argues that uh, when Paul uh, uses the the, the term. Dikaios uh, and agathos in uh, in Romans five seven that they don't bear carry any significant meaning there. So I think we could push back on that. Yeah, and just just for um, reference, let me just add, just for reference for listeners, um, Romans 5, 7 is um, transla- translated here, why, why one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, one will even dare to die. So you're saying that the term righteous man, you think that um, Barclay could have done more with the Dikaios term there? Yeah, especially with the Agathos term, with uh, the good. And, oh, for the good man, the Agathos. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the good man. So that that is that's a common way of, of referring to the benefactors. And uh, and Paul is using that to 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 argue that that is that Christ's gift is not a way of reciprocating the good deeds of. Uh, the of the good person who is in this case is the benefactor so so i don't think that 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 paul is simply that those those terms are just used there in the general sense of probably a good the good thing or a good cause but it bears the meaning of the good benefactor and and paul is saying well christ did not die for a law-abiding citizen a dikaios person or he did not die for the good. He's not reciprocating the good deeds of um, of the benefactor. So, we, yeah, that's just one of one one area that I think uh, we could we could strengthen Buckley's argument. You know, you kind of use Romans five one through eleven then also as a sounding board or as a preview for you know what comes throughout the the next section in Romans five twelve through eight thirty nine. Um, were there any other key insights that sort of came up as you used that first section of Romans 5 to help you kind of see things maybe you wouldn't have otherwise in Romans 5 through 8 more broadly? Yeah, one one of those is uh, how Paul divines, defines the realm in 
which the Messiah's gift erupts. And he has already uh, stated in Romans 5 that Christ died for, for the ungodly, for sinners, for enemies, for the weak. And then in Romans 5, 12, to the end of the chapter, he, he describes this, he fleshes it out even more, that sin increased in the Adamic dominion, where sin increased, God's grace increased even more. And so, so having understood what he is, is, is says about, about our unworthiness as recipients of the Messiah's gift, when you come to Romans 5, 12 to, to 21, then you see it even more that, yeah, so this is, Christ is, is giving us this great gift against the backdrop of uh, an avalanche of, of sin. And another thing that we see there is, is in Romans 5, 1 to 11, is, is, it's already stated that Christ died, the Messiah died for us. He shed his blood. We've been justified by his blood. So he's referring to Christ's sacrifice. And, and when it comes to, to 5, 12 to 21, where he argues that um, God's grace is, um, is super abundant, and where sin increased, grace abounded even more. It, it doesn't imply that in that Christ is now giving us more graces, more favors, or more gifts. He's still describing this one ultimate gift of Jesus Christ Himself. So, is 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 the greatness of this gift is not evident in its multiplicity, but just in its in its singularity as the one gift of Jesus Christ, which in turn, of course, leads to to other things that we enjoy as we are in Christ Jesus. So, but that singularity of Christ's gift that we see in, uh, in Romans 5, 1 to 11 is also, is also evident in Paul's argument in uh, Romans 5, 12, all the way to, to 21. We also see it in, in Romans 8, for example, where he, he writes that uh, God did not spare his own son, echoing the incident that we see with Abraham and his son. God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us. So that same singular gift we see Paul advancing that argument in Romans 8 as well. So Now, time's moving along, gentlemen. So uh, probably just one more question for each of you. Um, let, me, let me start with Josh then. Um, as Josh, you were, you know, Enoch's, you know, PhD supervisor for this project. And I'm worried that he might would be too modest if I was to ask him this question, but I have no concerns about that for you. Um, what do you um, what do you think that Enoch's largest contribution is then uh, with regard to this project, maybe for a reading of Romans uh, as a whole, or maybe maybe even more broadly within Pauline theology as a whole? Uh, where do you see the, the, the largest contribution here um, for Enoch's project? I think I, I think there are different you know, kinds of lenses and frameworks that can be used at times to illuminate what to us is a, you know, is an old 2000 year old argument and sometimes unwieldy um, in terms of it's the moves that Paul makes in Romans five through eight. Um, but I do think, um, as you said, like in a really helpful way, building upon um, some of John Barclay's uh, work in Paul and the gift, I think it does, a, you know, as good a job as any in terms of taking, um, royal benefaction as the lens and showing how um, it illuminates and holds together, makes coherent a lot of different Paul's moves in Romans 5 through 8. So 
you know, that would be my biggest, that would be my biggest statement. There's a lot of smaller ones. I'm glad we were able to talk about Romans five through seven. Um, that again, scarcely for, uh, uh, a righteous man will someone die, but perhaps for a good man within the context of Christ dying for the godless. Um, I think his reading of Romans 5, 7, which is always a verse that has perplexed me. This isn't his biggest one, but is also, there's a lot of great little nuggets like that as well in terms of, just last thing, yeah, surprising, you know, we already talked about this, but ways in which um, when Paul speaks of suffering as a gift or as a form of fidelity or loyalty, to our gift giver, things, little nuggets like those, I think are are helpful. And last thing I'll say, it's just a very readable book. It engages uh, ancient texts well, contemporary scholarship well, but it does so in a way that it's just very readable. So I think a lot of people would be, uh, would learn something, would also be edified just in terms of um, picking up Enoch's book. Yeah, no, I I wholeheartedly agree with all of that, especially it is really a strikingly readable book because a lot of, honestly, a lot of revised PhD dissertations are not. And um, I think the clarity with which it was written was was remarkable. But yeah, strong exegetically and theologically. Yeah, I think and another thing that we didn't really, um, I guess, just because we couldn't really touch on it, is it's replete with ancient sources. You're reading through it and he's got Seneca cited extensively and Aristotle and, uh, and the list goes on and on, right? And then both on the Greco-Roman and on the Jewish side, um, going through primary source material so that you get a you get a real grounding in actual texts that show what royal uh, benefaction culture looked like. So if you're if you're looking to get access to primary source texts, he has tons of that excerpted in there. Um, so you you can you can discover for yourself uh, what royal benefaction looked like on the ground level. So high praise for your your book, Enoch. Enoch, a final question for you then, um, and this is a question I, I often like to use to wrap up shows, and that's. Um, you know, if a pastor or leader was to read through your book and to be preaching a sermon or teaching others, what are you hoping that their main takeaway is that they're um, that as they're sharing with their congregation or their flock um, that that they're drawing from your book? And what are a couple of the things you're hoping that they emphasize? Yes, one of the things is what Paul means by grace carries. I think. That's just one area that we needed to emphasize more in our churches. What What is grace? And the nature of grace as a, a reciprocal uh, thing, and that uh, if you've received God's grace, you are expected to be loyal to Jesus Christ, to submit to his lordship. Yeah, so that's that's a huge. I think that would be one of the huge takeaways. Um, but but another one, which I mean, it's interesting that you're asking that question. I just for the last five weeks, there was a church that invited me to to share, to preach, and teach them Romans five to eight. And so one of the things that we were focusing on is just what does Paul mean by the gospel, and then. How about suffering? What is Paul's theology of suffering as found in those two chapters? So I hope that uh, that one of the pastoral takeaways would just be Paul's theology of suffering and and how that enables us to then see that as followers of Christ, suffering isn't optional, 
and that we've been invited to suffer with Christ and for Christ, and that suffering is not an accident. It is God's own orchestration, and God is accomplishing his purposes through that. And and sometimes just sharing in, in Christ's glory now, in, in this present life, comes to us in garments of pain and tears and shame. But then as we go through all that, we look forward to a time when we will be glorified, clothed with immortality, when all these things will be, will be, they are things of the past, will, will be behind, behind us. And so, yes, yeah, so I hope that, uh, that it, it illuminates our understanding of uh, Paul's theology of suffering as found in, in Romans 5 and uh, 8. That's that's really well put, Enoch. A great a great way of wrapping things up for us. Um, well, thank you so much for uh, joining uh, joining me today, Enoch, and thanks for being our special guest, uh, Josh Jip. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much, Matt, for having me on. <laughs> and thanks, Josh. It is good to see you for the first time in more, than, <laughs> in more than more than two years. <laughs> Oh, well, great to see you. Yeah, and and again, yeah. What what could be a better opportunity than to be asked questions again about your dissertation? You know, by by your former super this dissertation supervisor. Anyway, thanks thanks a lot, guys. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. We've been speaking today with Top Secret Special Agent Joshua Jip, uh, who was helping me co-host this episode, as well as our real special guest Enoch uh, Okada. Uh, we've been uh, talking to Enoch about his new book, Christ, the Gift, and the Giver, Paul's portrait of Jesus as the supreme royal benefactor in Romans 5, 1 through 11. This book is published by Cascade just this year, 2022, and there is a link to the book on our website, www.onscript.study. Thanks, friends, for listening. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.